Well, this morning we're going to hear some scripture reading as well from 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So let's listen to that now. First John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out to th- into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, uh, kids, for reading that scripture passage to us this morning. As you know, we've been working our way through this wonderful little letter of 1 John. And we've come to see that John's goal as an eyewitness to Jesus and his resurrection is to help us have complete joy, complete joy now, complete joy in this life by knowing that we know God. He wants us to understand that there is a deep reservoir available for you to sink your heart roots into, a reservoir of uh, objective doctrine and truth and reality but also uh, the subjective experience of knowing you know God. It's a both end. Truly living, he wants us to have life on life with Jesus now. To John, it's not just adding a few doctrines to your tool belt or just saying a magic prayer to invite Jesus into your heart. No, it's so much more than that. It's a real relational exchange with a person, with God in Jesus Christ through the indwelling abiding spirit that lives inside of you that theme abide has come up multiple times it's real true fellowship with god and john his book describes his letter describes us uh, who who have that fellowship like this whoever keeps his commandments abides in god and god in him there it is and by this we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us a really truly deeply intimate trinitarian you might say relationship with god is available john says and he's given us tests john has along the way by which to evaluate your spiritual life to test do you know you know jesus and we really could boil them down to these two here was the first one we've learned so far believe in jesus rest and place the weight of your life and your trust in him have real fellowship with him where his love bursts onto your heart. And the second one, which we keep going back to in just different ways, looking at it in different ways, the second test was obedience. Walk in the way he, Jesus walked, we've heard. Keeping commandments, we just read. Living in love and light have been the themes. And most specific in this book, it's, it's phrased this way. The loving of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are the two tests. 
And with their themes that we're going to keep coming back to, we've, we've described it like a melody in a song or a soundtrack that keeps returning to a similar melody line. John does that in this little letter. He has given us a lot to think about, a lot of tests and questions to apply to ourselves. But today he brings us to the crux of the challenge, which is when we test our faith, which, when we test our faith and want to assess uh, what helps us grow, what helps us grow? Is it right doctrine or right practice? Is it truth or spirit? Is it dogma or experience? Is it, is it brain, braininess or is it emotions? You know, we tend to fall into one camp or the other or one extreme or the other when John says it's a blended balance of both of those things. It's both truth and spirit. It's both doctrine and experience. It's both mind and relationships. But he reminds us again today, you better, you have to start and stick with good doctrine. And each and every one of us be good theologians. That's our message today. It's entitled, You Are a Theologian Too. You have to start with good beliefs, good doctrine, and continue in those things if the experiential and the emotion and the spiritual are to all line up, they go hand in hand. Here's a question for you. Do you know that every person on this planet is a theologian? Do you know that? And by that I mean everyone has thoughts of God. And everyone has a worldview theology. Uh, thoughts of God that form and shape how they view the world from a theist to the atheist. And everyone in between is a theologian. We all have thoughts about God. I mean, even the absence of thoughts or negative thoughts about God, our thoughts are a theology. We are all theologians, every one of us. And so this morning in John 4, 1 through 6, John encourages us to be discerning theologians of Jesus so that you and I will listen to voices that deserve to shape us and mold us to the spirit of truth and the true Jesus, not the spirit of error, the spirit of Antichrist in the world now. So what type of theologian are you? With the cacophony of voices and messages you're bombarded with and the contradicting narratives we face every day, how do you discern truth from a lie? or truth from slight in untruth, or the real Jesus from a false Jesus. How do you do that? This morning we're going to look at four characteristics of a godly theologian. Because we're all theologians. John's goal and my goal, my heart, is that we be good godly theologians. So let's begin with our first characteristics. We've got four of them I said, so hopefully you got your outline. Grab it, have it in front of you, or look on your uh, tablet or smartphone and as it's been emailed out to you yesterday. And hopefully you've got your Bible open too as we're going to now go through this passage of 1 John 4, 1 through 6. And our first characteristic of a godly theologian, a godly theologian learns to, to listen with discernment to the voices in their life, in your life. That's the first thing John begins by saying in verse 1. As I paraphrase, he basically says in verse 1, don't believe everything you hear, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because you know there are a lot of false teachers out there, a lot of false messages. 
And how will you know a godly message from a false one? That's how John starts this passage in that paraphrase I just said. He says, beloved, again, that, that word of friendship, that word of care, that word of unity and concern. You know what that means? This is addressed to you. This is for all of us. He says, beloved. He's saying each and every one of you must never stop being a student of God's word. You, beloved, be testers of the teaching and the spirits behind them that animate them and motivate them. The language of verse 1 is strong. He is saying this is imperative. The words are imperative. As you listen, as you test, it's imperative. You must not believe. Imperative again. Every spirit, but test every spirit. What they say. It's imperative, you know, when you receive a, a new piece of clothing or a new piece of equipment, and you attached is that little tag that says inspected by number 2374 uh, or, or, you know, overseen or, or looked at by this, this person. It gives us the assurance of the quality control of the product. Or you buy a product and on it it says, oh, this is 100% natural or 100% organic. No pesticides used. We, we love that. We love to get that little assurance from the sticker or the tag. Or how about with the discussion of the new vaccine they're working on for COVID-19? How many people have said, yeah, I don't want to be the first they try it on. What if it has horrible side effects? Let me see them vet it first. Test the spirit of that vaccine first before I let you use it on me. We like to have things tested before we put them in our bodies or use them as a product. A and we like the assurance of a tag that says, this has been thoroughly vetted and looked at. Well, with the messages, too, we listen to, that we imbibe, we take in the words we hear and put in our ears and hearts, do we apply that same standard? You might be thinking, well, you know, what does this have to do with us today, where we're living right now? I mean, doctrine, theologians, theology, it makes me think of uh, uh, makes me think of stuffy theologians, with no connection to my the reality in my life. Long deceased people who who used to argue about just irrelevant minutia, the tiny details. You might think that when you hear this word theology, doctrine, and you're called to be a theologian. Or some of you might think, well, you know, okay, I, I kind of get that, but I, when I come to church, I just kind of want to, like, just. Give me some good stuff for how to live my life, to be a better parent and, or have a better marriage or uh, be successful or have people like me. Uh, you might think, well, that's, I just want to be really practical. I mean, if you believe that way, and I heard one pastor say this week, you show your naivety or lack of self-awareness. Why? Because every single one of us lives out of all kinds of doctrines. Everything you do is driven by some belief. Everything. Let me see if I can give us some contemporary examples of why this matters, testing what we hear and being good theologians of what we listen to. First, just the fact that ideas have consequences. Have you thought of that? 
Ideas have consequences in the church, in the world, in the culture, in politics, in your family, in the school. And bad ideas have bad consequences. And bad ideas have victims. What we believe shapes who we are, shapes what we value, what we hold dear. You know, we've said here at Bethany Church, you are what you love. Well, what you love is many times shaped by what you believe. So it matters. It's important. Ideas of consequences. That's practical. Here's another example. We live, the, the God of our age, the God of our age is emotions and feelings. Uh, some have called it emotivism. I live out of my emotions. They are my primary compass, guide, director, filter through which I run everything. And what this has done is it's made it in our age and in the time we live, it's made it really difficult to have logical, reasonable, objective truth dialogue. That's getting so much harder to come by. We're even seeing our, 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 our news industry transform from fact to more of opinion making and shaping. It's really affecting our culture. If you feel it, it must be true. If it makes you happy, Sheryl Crow sang a couple decades back, it can't be that bad was her lyric. You probably remember that song. Maybe it's playing in your head right now. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. That's emotivism. If you feel it, it must be true. Or uh, even more relevant to our age, the pure emotivism slogan, love is love. Uh, not qualified by anything. Love is love. Were you unable to think of an appropriate response to that slogan? Why is that the case if you weren't? Because we have bought into the spirit of our age. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Feelings are God in our age. And so we need, again, to hear verse 1 from John, be a good discerner. Now, feelings, when informed by truth, can be powerful tools, and they're gifts from God. But apart from right thinking, follow your heart is not good advice. Another practical example. Why this matters. Here's how I've seen this in the church. Here's some more examples. Why this matters today. I've asked people before who, as I've been a pastor for many years, asked them, why are you following that path? Why did you make that decision? Why are you going down that road which is sinful? Why are you going in that direction? And I've heard replies bef before, well, I've prayed about it. Implying that, well, I got a sense, an impression, a feeling that it's good, and, you know, it feels like it's okay for me. When it was clearly something that absolutely contradicted God's word. If you ever pray and hear from God, Something that contradicts his word with even the, the slightest whiff, I can promise you, you didn't hear from God. You didn't hear from him. Or the age-old discussion in the church that happens too, it's about relationships or truth or going deep in word or our stories and our experiences. It's always been both and always needs to be both. It has to be both. That's the definition of true Christian fellowship. So, of course, the doctrine believes and informs and infuses the relationships. Here's another one. Look at our advertising today. Why is it that we would rather hear from a celebrity endorsement than from an actual expert on a topic? If you can present it with just a little charisma, personality, and, 
and, and good looks, you can build a brand empire, a revolution, or a false religion. Why? Because we've lost the ability to be good theologians, good thinkers, think for ourselves and, and test the spirits, as verse 1 says. And John says it's important because, as we know, there's a great commission for us. Jesus says, go out into this world and make disciples of all nations. There's also a satanic commission, verse 1 says. Verse 1 says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And in the context of our letter, do you know where those false prophets came from? Inside the church John was writing to. It matters. He says there's a, a, a false prophets that have gone out. Implying that if it isn't from God, verse 3 says, it is the spirit of Antichrist. It is against Christ, that means. Not necessarily that figure that we might think would come as the Antichrist, but it's a spirit of Antichrist. It's against Christ. And Paul reminds us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces that animate all kinds of messages and all kinds of people. It's either from God or it isn't. There's really no in-between. And John calls us with his first characteristic to be discerning. I mean, this is an incredibly unpopular idea in our world today. The only doctrine you're allowed to hold in our world today is that there shouldn't be any absolute doctrines. But what if you believe that today? Maybe that's you today listening. You're going, you know, this absolute truth idea, uh, you know, I, I just don't think, I, I believe you shouldn't hold to that. Or absolute even exclusivity of Christianity is the only way. If, that, if that's what you believe, you're not being intellectually honest with yourself because that in itself is a doctrine. To say that there's no right doctrine is, uh, and we can't say that, that in itself is a doctrine, is something you're believing and holding to. We've got to be intellectually honest. Every one of us holds to truth claims, even the truth claim that there are no truths. I love what... Um, Robert Yarbrough said that if that's the case, then to love for us is, as John understands it, is apparently not just indiscriminate affirmation of everything, but discerning devotion. We're called to be good hearers and listeners and discerners. It's our first characteristic of a godly theologian. Here's our second. That as we listen to the voices in our life, as we try to discern and test and see Here's what John tells us. We, we can know the test as we listen to voices. We know it, and here it is. The test is in the motivating spirit behind that teacher, that preacher, that message. And the accurate or inaccurate confession of any voice. Verse two through three, verses 2 through 3 lay out for us the way we now go about discerning the voices we listen to. If verse 1 was an encouragement, you've got to be a thinker, a theologian, and listen to discern. Verses 2 through 3 tells us how. By this you know, John says. By this, he's giving us the answer. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, he says. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. This is how you know. That's how you know. John says the measuring stick for a true teacher 
is what they say about Jesus. The yardstick is, is Christ, he says. What you believe about him matters. It's, it's everything. When I first arrived here as your pastor a few years back, uh, one of the first men I met was uh, Dave Starkey. Most of you know him, maybe some of you don't, but um, uh, Dave, he's someone who's served so well here for so many years and still is, and, but just recently so stepped back from chairing our deacon team. And he was so instrumental in my first, uh, first year in particular, and first few months of, of us transitioning and my transition here as your pastor. And at that time, he was caring a lot for our church. So I'm grateful for him, including a lot of the finances that he worked on with, with Joy, our uh, uh, financial administrator. All kinds of things. And it was because Dave is a detailed guy. If you know him, that's what his career was. And he used to make uh, uh, parts, I think, at one time for windows. And he was working with one of our elders in the church, Lauren, I think, to make some parts for him. And they had a discussion one time about a, where to place, I think it was a hole on this one part for something to connect to. Or I don't know much about windows, but it is the best I've got for this story. And it went something like this. Dave was asking, well, where do you want it? And I think Lauren said, well, right about here. And they were talking about within an eighth of an inch. And, and Dave said, no, where do you want it? Meaning, like, we need to go to the thousandth of the inch here. One one-thousandth of an inch detail. And so Dave became known as Micrometer Dave, what became his nickname. He measured well because he knew it wouldn't fit unless it was precise, like down to the, the thousandth of an inch. Well, when it comes to Christ, it matters what we measure. It matters that we are precise. John says this, test someone by what they say about Jesus. And how much do they talk about Jesus? And John says what matters is, do they say that he truly came in the flesh? Is he the incarnate son of God? You can't play in one-eighths of an inch with Christ. I mean, it's down to the thousandth of an inch. When it comes to Christ, we all need to be micrometer Dave, micrometer theologians when it comes to Jesus. It's that important. And that's why we talk about Bethany Church as a, a Christ-centered church, a gospel-centered church here at Bethany Church. That is who we are because that's what John says in his word today matters. Have you noticed in the Bible that the Father and the Spirit, especially in the New Testament, they're inconspicuously quiet. Have you noticed that? And not truly quiet, because Father, Son, and Spirit are one God. So when Christ speaks, the Father and the Spirit speak too, and vice versa. But isn't it so humble? The Spirit loves to make much of Christ. Do you know that? His job, even as one of the members of the Godhead of the Trinity, the Spirit's job is to humbly point not to himself, but point people to Jesus, the Savior. And the Father, we know, was pleased to make every knee bow, not at his name, the Father, but at the name of his Son, Jesus. Even the Father and the Spirit know and point to the fact that Jesus is, is the center. Like the hub of a wheel from which everything is built with, with which out, it would crumble. There is a motivating spirit behind every teacher. And the true spirit is the one who makes 
much of Christ, John says, and, and speaks clearly of Christ, an accurate confession. So the motivating spirit, what's behind the teacher? And then when they teach, is it an accurate confession of Jesus? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we've been quoting a few times throughout this series, said this about the true spirit versus the false spirit. He said the true spirit, the true motivating spirit behind a true teacher always glorifies Christ. He's always the center, he said. He, that's Jesus, is always given preeminence. And the true prophet is not the man who talks about experiences and visions and what he has seen, uh, done and seen, but about Christ. And when you've heard this true teacher, you do not say, wow, what a wonderful man. You say, ah, what a wonderful Savior. You do not say, oh, what a wonderful experience that man has had. You say, who is the man of whom he is speaking? The attention is to Christ. He glorifies Christ. That's the true spirit. That's the accurate confession. That's what I want to be about here at Bethany Church. But this goes for you too. This isn't just for pastors, professors at a seminary, missionaries. Beloved, John says. Beloved. That's all. That's you. Beloved, don't believe everything but test the spirits this way. Beloved, you are called to be a theologian. Do you know that? To know you know God is to know about this God. And the deeper you know this God, it, uh, about him, is the deeper to, you know him. You can't separate the two. You just can't do it. You know, there was, I was listening to a story a while back of a, <clears throat> a man who was speaking on a college campus, and he uh, was speaking to students and about some really tough doctrinal moral things and, and, and how we need to be a voice in the culture. One of the students came up to him afterwards and said, I mean, isn't it enough we just love Jesus? I mean, isn't that just enough? And, and, and his thought was, oh, yes, but it's not less than that. It's more than that. To know Jesus and to love Jesus is to know what Jesus loves and what he is all about. You can't separate the two. If we think we're just going to coast and live on emotions, those, those peter out pretty quick. You have to also know what you believe and know that the center is Christ. So do people hear you speak of Christ? Do people make much of you? Or do they walk away saying, who is the man of whom she is speaking? of whom he is speaking. You might be thinking, you know, ah, that's just too hard, Jeff. That's just too hard. I mean, on the one hand, just to speak of Jesus is really tough. I just struggle saying his name. Have you ever noticed as soon as you say his name in some circles, the tension that imme immediately comes like, oh, you said the name Jesus. It just happens in some circles. Or maybe you think, you know, discerning true teaching or truth. I mean, it's really hard, Jeff. Have you heard all the different voices out there? I mean, everyone has a survey or a statistic that proves their side. I, I know there's a lot of noise in our world right now. But I also know this. I know there's one place where there's lo not a lot of noise. And there's one place where you don't even need to worry about having to test the Spirit. Do you know where it is? You pick up your Bible. You pick it up. When you open this 
You don't have to test it. It is God's word. It is his voice. So we have to, if, we're, if Christ is going to be the center, if we're going to know who this God is, we have to pick this up. I've heard some people say, you know, I know that. I keep it close to my bed. I keep it in my living room on my coffee table. It's right there, and I know that, but I just never seem to find the time for it. And maybe your dialogue says that. I read through 1 John the last few days. It took me like 15 minutes, and I'm a pretty slow reader, actually. Do we not have 15 minutes? 10 minutes in our day? 5 minutes in our day? Think about that when we say, I just don't have the time. There are so many deceptions being fired at you daily. And, and sometimes don't you feel you're drowned out by the secular tidal wave of information and entertainment and media? It can be discouraging. And maybe you're already discouraged hearing my words today as I talk about speaking of Christ and being a good theologian. But here's the hope in this passage. It's our third characteristic of the godly theologian and our reason to hope. A godly theologian finds comfort knowing that in the end, only one voice will stand. You can test the spirits. You can trust that all the false voices, all the antichrists will fall away. Why? Because we have this glorious little gem of verse 4. Without it, this letter would, would prove probably so challenging that it might feel hopeless. But we have verse 4. Look at it in your Bible. Here, I'll read it to you. Little children, again, that's all of us who follow Christ. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. When you look at our world right now, it does not look optimistic, does it? It does not, especially looking at our nation. There is an increasing tension in our nation and a splintering and divisiveness that maybe we've only seen at this level on a few or exceeding this level on a few different times. A divisiveness of two polarizing camps that just don't see the world the same. It's not good. I'm going to be honest with you. It is not good. And yet, you and I have reason to hope when so many are running around hopelessness without with hopelessness maybe your personal life right now is being battered by all kinds of lies and false messages and you just feel like you're drowning or maybe you just feel apathetic today and worn out by the past 11 weeks of quarantine i know that's a lot of you take heart john says he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The images on the news, your, your Facebook feed, talk radio, this prophet and that prophet and this predictor of doom and maybe it's the stock market or your lab results, whatever the surrounding circumstances look like, here's the truth that this verse 4 teaches us. The surrounding circumstances are not the final story or voice in your life. The surrounding circumstances are not the final story. John says, you know, you come up against these tests and false voices. Don't place confidence in yourself. Don't do that. But as verse 4 says, if you are from God, your victory is assured only because of the one who's in you. It's not you. It's the one who abides in you, 
God's Spirit. And so that means where you go, He goes. He's taken up residence in your life and heart. And as surely as Jesus came in the flesh, died in the flesh, and rose again in the flesh, the enemies of God will not prevail over him or you or your life. You are his. But that already purchased victory doesn't mean we just push, can push cruise control and say, hey, I know the end from the beginning, so you know what? It doesn't matter. We just, we, hey, I got my ticket of salvation. I'm good. I'm just going to put up my feet, kick back and relax. No, no, no. It doesn't mean we can do that even though the victory is assured. Remember, we live in the already, not yet. Yes, it's already purchased for us, but we also must live faithful and persevere until the end, Scripture says. So the fourth characteristic this passage gives us of a godly theologian is this. We need to let our listening now, what we listen to, shape us, mold us, shape our worldview, shape our view of the world. Verse 5 through 6. John closes with basically saying, we are all going to listen to voices. It's just inevitable. We are all going to be shaped and molded and be drawn to certain speakers and and words. Uh, On the one hand, the words of Christ, uh, the work of Christ, it's foolishness to those who are not from God. In fact, they can't hear it apart from a divine, sovereign, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. They can't even hear it. We shouldn't be surprised, that means, when we hear the world's message of power, of might, of relativism, of narcissism, of individualism. We shouldn't be surprised, but you know what it also means? You shouldn't be self-righteous when we look at those who live like citizens of the world, because that is what they are. Citizens of the world live like citizens of the world. And you know what? That message of the world contradicts the voice of Christ. But, but, if you've been transferred to the kingdom of light, verse 6 says, you listen to different voices. You have new ears that come from a new heart that was given to you by a gracious God. And now you have new voices to listen to and follow and to be formed by because that's what the voices do that we listen to. That's what the messages do that we put into our heart and mind. Here's what's interesting. Both the world and God's kingdom, they're both formational. That's what they do. We're malleable as human beings. And there's forces outside of us coming upon us that are formational. Both the world and God's kingdom. They're both catechizing their citizens to use a kind of old-fashioned but but church church kind of word they're both though the kingdom of the world and the church they're both catechizing their citizens what does that mean training them getting them ready teaching them what we value in this kingdom what we value in this kingdom what's the goal of this kingdom what's the goal of that kingdom both of them are catechizing their citizens every message you get and so the role then of the church is to be formational, to shape you, to mold you, to form you, to catechize you, even though you might not like that word. 
We don't like necessarily that, the, that idea in any camp because we don't like to think that we need something outside of ourselves. We love to feel we're self-sufficient. But that's not how God, and that's not how John in this letter puts forward uh, what the role of the church and teachers are. We are to listen, he says. If you're from that kingdom, you'll listen to those voices. And they will mold and shape you, whatever kingdom you're in. Almost like a workshop, think. Or a gym, you go to be molded and shape your body. Or you're the family of origin that you grew up in. It formed you. Sometimes for better or for worse, didn't it? It formed you. It made you. It shaped you and made you into what you are. I mean, it's really, that's what discipleship is. It's being formed and made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. But you can be formed into the likeness of a lot of things, even as a Christian, actually. You can be formed into the image of a lot of things. It's why our mission is so simply at Bethany Church, helping people follow Jesus. John says in verse 6, to be from God is to listen to those who truly speak for God. What he means by that is what you listen to will shape how you view the world and how you live and what you value. Remember, you are what you love. Well, you love what you've been formed and shaped by and habituated into, you might even say. You're always being shaped by something. And the messages you receive throughout your day, they aren't morally neutral. Every piece of entertainment you consume is speaking some message to you. Do you know that? Do you view it like that? That's not to say you, can't, you can only view Christian media. I'm not saying that. But are you critical enough? Are you discerning enough, like verse 1 says, that when you watch, you also think? We can become such passive consumers of the messages that we hear and listen to that we don't even realize what they're doing to us over time. That's how a culture is transformed. That's how our people are formed and shaped. It's forming and shaping you into one kind of a theologian or another, every message you hear. That's why as a church, as a local body now, we have to take things seriously like doctrine, like accountability, like leadership, like covenant membership, like discipleship, like expository preaching, like life groups, like relationships and prayer, because they're all formational. They're all shaping you. And I, our leaders, and you have a reformational responsibility to be shaped into the image of Christ by the words of Christ, by the work of Christ. And that's also what the Lord's Supper is to do. It's formational. It shapes us. It molds us as we take it as one body. And it renews our hope because it reminds us that, here was that little truth again, the surrounding circumstances are not the final story or voice in your life. Jesus was at, uh, he, Jesus was great at seeming to contradict what looked like reality around the disciples. He, he would contradict it with something he'd say or teach that just looked like a head-on collision. It was the night before his death on a cross. The night before. And the opposition was ready to take them. And John records in his gospel, the same writer of our letter, same John, Judas had fled to betray him. And they were ready to pounce on and destroy him, rip him limb from limb if they could, Jesus, that is. He was telling his disciples on that night, you'll be put out of synagogues, they'll kick you out, they'll disown you, and those who kill you will think they're doing a God a favor. 
And then he went on to say, and by the way, I'm leaving this world and going back to the Father. And then he went on to say in the same passage, John 16 around there, he says, you're also going to have a lot of sorrow. Imagine being one of Jesus' followers at this moment. And it might kind of feel like that for you today. The surrounding circumstances to his disciples, maybe in your life today, look like a dead end. And it did. It looked like that. But Jesus knew what was coming. The night of it, he's about to die on a cross. After all that bad news, he said this to his disciples then. This is where it would look so contradicting. He said, ah, but take heart. I've overcome the world. He hadn't even died yet. It's baffling. On the lips of a man who's going to face the greatest sorrow, our punishment for sin, and face the greatest suffering having his father turn his back on him, and whose disciples are going to have to do the same in some way suffer, he says, take heart. He that is in you is greater than anything in the world. That's what these elements remind us of. The controlling voice, the controlling image is not the voice of the masses, not the voice of false prophets, not the voice of your nagging conscience, not the voice of the enemy, Satan. The ultimate consideration is the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. The overarching plan of God that beyond the cross for the faithful child of God is the world everlasting. So take heart as we prepare to take these elements. David's going to come up with me and and bring our elements up and get us ready to take it. I want you to take a few moments, just silently in your home as David and I get ready here, just to think through the truths of 1 John. Think through the test that he's given us. Think through your own life. Think through your own, how do you listen to the voices that come into your life? What do you fill your mind and heart with? Are you a godly theologian? Think through those four characteristics we thought through today. And even take your sins to Christ now in a a few moments of silence, and then I'll lead us. Bow and take some time. Hopefully you have your elements there. Either you gather them before or maybe you just did a quick dash to the kitchen to get some, some sort of bread and some sort of juice, something to drink. And I got to think that night when Jesus was in the r- upper room with the disciples having that feast that that too looked contradictory. Why are we pausing, Jesus? Why are we stopping when we're on our way to take back Jerusalem, to take back the kingdom? Why do we need to pause for a moment? We've heard enough of your teaching. A a little more? Come on, Jesus. But this was the take heart, I've overcome the world. This is where it took place, the cross. And his body and his blood, which are symbolized by our elements right now, and the grace we get to have by taking it together. I know we're not all together, but in spirit, remember, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The same spirit's in every house, every living room, every kitchen, wherever you're watching this. We are doing this together even though we're apart. Believe that. Know that. And someday we'll do it again together in our sanctuary. We will. Someday we'll do it again in our sanctuary with all of us there. 
It must have looked contradictory when he took that bread, the bread that would represent his body. And he held it up to them, and he'd given thanks, and he broke it, symbolizing his breaking. And he said to them, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So take it together in faith, knowing that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let me pray for the cup for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you as we take this to let us know that we can discern the messages in our life. We can't do it passively. We need to be active parts of our growth and our sanctification. You've called us to that. But we have your spirit of truth living in us, those who've repented and placed their faith in Christ. So give us that encouragement. Give us that confidence, not in ourselves, but confidence in your power working through us. Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power in us, that same spirit of truth. So Lord Jesus, bless the cup as we take it. May it actually be a means of grace to us, a sweet mercy to us that we get to do this again as your people. And fill us with hope to live as lights in this world, even in the dark time it is. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So hopefully you got your cup there. And he said, after supper, he took this cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you know what we're proclaiming? That victory is certain. It is already and not yet, but it is already. He is coming. So take the cup together. Will you sing with me at home? Don't leave me alone on this one. Let's sing it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.